And just this past week, um, I think about 70 different healthcare organizations, including, you know, Chime, which represents hospital CIOs and UPMC in Pittsburgh and, you know, um, Intel, you know, big vendors like that have wrote to a congressional leadership demanding that they, you know, kind of get their act together with regard to, you know, some of these um, changes and, and give them some, some direction to help them, you know, plan going forward. I'm your host, Joda Comstock, and I'm joined today by Healthcare IT News Senior Editor Kat Jersich and Healthcare IT News Executive Editor Mike Milliard. We're going to be talking about the American Telemedicine Association's virtual conference last week, which Kat attended, um, and more generally about what's going on right now with telemedicine and telehealth. HIMSS Media just launched a specialty newsletter all about telehealth, so this is a topic that's interesting to you. Uh, Please follow the link in the show notes and sign up, subscribe. Uh, So with that, uh, thanks for joining me, Mike and Kat. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Amwell who has experienced how COVID-19 has led to a sharp increase in the number of healthcare providers using telehealth and the ways in which they are incorporating telehealth into their practices. As a result of social distancing requirements and regulatory changes under COVID-19, providers and specialists of all kinds shifted to telehealth en masse to provide ongoing care to new and existing patients. This shift has fundamentally changed how providers experience telehealth as part of their day-to-day and has helped the world reimagine how virtual technologies like remote patient monitoring devices can impact our ability to serve patients, especially those suffering from chronic diseases. So, Kat, um, you were at a lot of the ATA sessions. Um, This was obviously also your first ATA, I assume. Um, So you're you're not able to necessarily tell us... uh, how it differed from from previous years, but what were your impressions? Uh, any, anything surprise you about the content or the presentation? I guess what surprised me was how clear it was, how well prepared a lot of the presenters were to talk about telehealth. And what I mean by that is, as we've been reporting on telehealth over the last few months, it's all been so focused on the response to the coronavirus pandemic. Almost all of our reporting has had understandably, this lens of the coronavirus and people's responses to it, how telehealth has experienced this huge uptick. And so it was really interesting to hear from people who have been, of course, working on telehealth for decades, really speak to how their programs have been in place, how they've gotten more popular, but also the work that they've been doing for years and years to get patients access to care whether that's patients in rural areas, older patients, uh, patients who just don't have the means to go into the doctor. And so that was probably the most interesting part, hearing the results of studies that took place two or three years ago and about other innovations that have come to the forefront with the pandemic, but certainly aren't new. Yeah, I mean, certainly I can imagine there would have been a temptation to talk about COVID-19 almost constantly at this conference, but it's interesting, you know, we all know because we're involved with hymns that that these things are planned for months and months in advance so it also makes sense that some of the content would be a little more general yeah definitely i was thinking in particular about a presentation i went to on a telehealth study that was piloted 
uh, in 2018 and 2019 that specifically focused on connecting um, patients who were not able to leave their homes with sort of um, ambulatory technicians who would sort of come and act as an intermediary between the physician and the patient. And this has been going on for years and years, but again, with the coronavirus pandemic, it kind of threw that all into relief. How do you, for example, get uh, individuals into patients' homes and still keep everyone involved safe? Isn't that presenting the same kinds of concerns that a patient going in to see the doctor would have? So that was kind of interesting too. There was this, I don't want to say a shadow of coronavirus hanging over the whole thing, but that's kind of what it felt like. Um, This constant need to acknowledge that we were in an ever-changing environment while still drawing attention to the fact that a lot of these programs, again, were not new. Right. I wonder how big a difference there was in the attendance numbers, just based on one, the fact that it was a virtual conference, and two, the just huge surge of interest in telehealth that didn't really exist before COVID. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure about the numbers. I did know that a lot of uh, Q&A portions were fairly well attended from what I could tell from folks interacting, people asking questions. It was pretty smoothly executed in terms of um, the ability to ask presenters questions, um, the back and forth. Some presenters uh, included polls, which was really interesting um, and kind of a fun way to get people involved. And so there definitely was a sense of interactivity, nothing like a real in-person conference, but um, definitely still really valuable. And it was clear that people wanted to interact and wanted to network and wanted to share information. Were you hearing mostly from uh, provider types, as in you know people who work in hospitals and, and, and doctor's offices, uh, or more from the vendor side, from the people who are kind of enabling and offering these telehealth services? This may have been just the sessions that I was choosing, but I definitely heard more from providers who had benefited from telehealth, with the exception of a presentation I went to on chatbots, which kind of melded um, a chatbot vendor and a few providers who had benefited from the chatbots. Um, but I would say providers and also health system administrators, um, Avera eCare was well represented. Um, it was, I suppose it was across the board, but the sessions I went to were mostly providers. Great. Mike, I know you've been editing Cat here and you also have been helping uh, to get this Telehealth Connect newsletter off the ground. Um, can you just talk a little bit about why sort of why this is the moment to, to launch that product, why telehealth is so important right now and, and some of what we've been seeing more broadly? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, it has uh, been thrust into the spotlight just by the circumstances we find ourselves in. Um, and, you know, as someone who went to his first ATA concert, uh, went to his first ATA uh, conference in person um, almost 10 years ago, back in 2011, uh, it's it's pretty interesting to see just how much things have changed, and it's the technology obviously, and it's the appetite on uh, behalf of the providers and the patients. But um, there have been some really major policy changes in response to the pandemic, obviously, which have set the stage for um, for this explosion of growth. And so, obviously, you know, as as telehealth is proving its worth on a daily basis now. I think um, it's going to be here to stay in a lasting and substantial way. You know, just how substantial going forward, you know, when, when hopefully this pandemic has subsided, 
will be interesting to see. But I, I certainly think a lot of policy changes are going to be in the offing and in a lot of the allowances that have been made with regard to reimbursements and, and regulation, um, whether it's, you know, Medicare reimbursement or privacy policies um, from from HHS OCR. Um, I think they, they need to get that sorted out pretty quickly, though, to allow providers and, and vendors to uh, to plan for the future. Mike, I do think you've hit on the million dollar question there, which is just how much is this a, a permanent sea change and how much is it a temporary spike? How much will providers sort of regress to the mean uh, after, after this is all, uh, well, after you know the COVID crisis is over? And I, my understanding is just this week, we're starting to see some numbers that don't look as good for uh, telehealth visits to, to continue rising. Is that right? I mean, I think it stands to reason that as, you know, doctor's offices and hospitals begin to open up a bit more for in-person consults and and uh, elective surgeries and whatnot, you're, you're certainly going to see some more in-person visits, you know, rather than in the early days of this when everybody was really hunkered down at home. So I think it's probably natural to see a, a bit of a reduction in, in telehealth consults. But I think there's an appetite for it. I think, you know, for a lot of uh, medical procedures that can require just a quick chat with the doctor, it makes sense to, to not have an in-person visit. So I think we'll have to see. But, you know, on the policy front, I know Kat covered a, a Senate Help Committee hearing um, last week, and maybe she could talk about that in a bit. But, you know, they've got some questions that they're trying to, you know, get some answers to about how much of these regulations are going to be made permanent. And just this past week, um, I think about 70 different healthcare organizations, including, you know, Chime, which represents hospital CIOs and UPMC in Pittsburgh and, you know, um, Intel, you know, big vendors like that have wrote to a congressional leadership demanding that they, you know, kind of get their act together with regard to, you know, some of these um, changes and, and give them some, some direction to help them, you know, plan going forward. They say, you know, we encourage you to build on this important progress to enable digital healthcare innovations not only to contribute to the defeat of COVID-19, but also to prevent the sudden unavailability of virtual health options for Medicare patients after the national public health emergency has expired. And they you know, are particularly asking them to make the temporary expanded access to digital health and telehealth technology um, permanent. Um, so I think you know, it's, it's going to be up to the leaders in the, in the House and the Senate to, to figure out how they're going to regulate this stuff going forward. Kat, do you want to add anything? I know you did cover that congressional hearing, and I also noticed just today you wrote about that Commonwealth report about this plateau in the growth of of telemedicine visits. Right. I do want to note that although the rate has definitely slowed, it's in contrast to that huge uptick we saw in mid-April. So even though the numbers dropped down to about 7% of baseline from, I think the high was 14%, that's still compared to 0.1% uh, before March. So it's still an enormous increase. But like Mike said, I do think that as folks aren't as fearful about going to the doctor, especially in places where they don't have to rely on transit, we are going to see an increase in more in-person services. And when people start realizing that the chronic care that they've been deferring, things like vaccines, um, management of chronic conditions that they couldn't seek care for virtually for whatever reason, we've heard a lot from folks about how that's probably going to cause a big surge in need down the line. And I think maybe people are starting to turn to in-person visits more for that. Of course, another thing I heard about at the conference was the huge increase in vendors for 
biomarkers, for example, or remote patient monitoring to help monitor those chronic conditions. Um, one chatbot uh, note that's really stuck with me was the ability to tell emotional tone from people who are speaking to chatbots. And I sort of envisioned the chatbots that I've interacted with in times of frustration recognizing caps lock as like an indicator of my mental state. Um, but I mean, it is a real uh, advancement, especially for um, behavioral health care and mental health care and telehealth. Um, but getting back to the Senate Health Committee, yeah, I mean, we saw some optimistic indicators from members of that committee. Lamar Alexander was in favor of changing the originating site rule and expanding the number of services available. Other attendees really spoke in favor of allowing for cross-state licensure. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, Senator Braun from Indiana was really against parity for telehealth, which is kind of um, a new concept, I think, because we've been so mired in the changes that folks have been asking for to help telehealth last, I hadn't heard someone advocate against parity um, for telehealth services versus in-person services, because of course, that would make providers uh, economically disinclined to offer telehealth services if they weren't being paid at the same rate. But um, Senator Braun felt very strongly that it would cause uh, economic inequality um, I think uh, he, he felt very strongly that um, it would cause a market disruption, I think would be the most accurate way to put it. There's actually an interesting history there. Um, I, I think this this is something I wrote about you know, years ago um, in, around sort of the, the difficulty of getting these parity laws in place was it's just that licensure rules are made by state medical boards. Uh, state medical boards are generally made up of doctors. Um, so there's a direct kind of almost a conflict of interest where the, the people who are setting the laws are the people who sort of were the most threatened by telehealth. Um, but of course, also, you know, people who could can themselves use telehealth. So I, so I think this turning point where, you know, telehealth is becoming a little more universal and a little less boutique um, can kind of even overcome that uh you know, that difficulty if those stakeholders see that they can that this is not just a threat it's also a potential benefit for them I guess mm-hmm. the general sense that I have is that you know there, there were there were a lot of different barriers that we would talk about when we talked about why telehealth adoption was so slow and the COVID-19 crisis has addressed some of them um, certainly barriers around patient comfort with the technology, around provider comfort with the technology. It's forced people to address some of the barriers in infrastructure. Other barriers in infrastructure you know, persist in terms of like 4G and 5G access in, in rural areas and things like that. But, um, but I think there are certain um, obstructions that were, were not affected by, by COVID-19. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, reimbursement is, is almost a question mark which column that's going to land in definitely and i mean it's a continuing conversation again as states open up again and then as they close again i think there's really a balance trying to be struck between what is reasonable to expect of people when they try to seek health care um, especially for people in underserved communities which uh, senator tina smith from minnesota talked to me about Last week, uh, she feels very strongly about the fact that um, 
a Pew Research survey from 2019 found that only two-thirds of Black adults uh, and 61% of Hispanic adults have uh, access to broadband in their home, which you just mentioned with 4G and 5G. And so it's not just rural areas, it's also folks in cities, folks in suburbs who may not have access to that technology, people who don't speak English or Spanish or don't have access to medical interpreters, that's another hurdle. Um, So yeah, I think there are a number of existing issues that I know people have at the forefront of their minds um, particularly the underserved community aspect did come up at ATA 2020 a lot. Uh, Ann Mont Johnson mentioned it straight off the bat, um, particularly around COVID-19, because it has affected people of color at such higher rates than white people. Um, so that's something that I have noticed a lot in my reporting as well. Um, people seem very dedicated to centering the needs of underserved folks and people who are disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned earlier, Jonah, um, patients becoming more comfortable um, with, with this. And I think for those who are able to access telehealth, the experience of conversing with their provider online has been more rewarding than I think a lot of patients expected. I was just talking to um, the chief medical officer of uh, Doctor on Demands, one of the um, leading telehealth vendors um, earlier this month, and they did a study with uh, NYU Langone that was published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Uh, that showed um, 30% of patients um, specifically cited, you know, the ability to build rapport with their physician via these virtual visits, um, which um, is, is is fairly substantial for, you know, a, a technology that can be seen as, as kind of distancing. Um, and one ironic thing, you know, they appreciated that they were able to look at their physician in the eye. You know, half the time, if you're in an in-person visit, you're sitting in a... Uh, exam room and the, the doctor has their back to you as they enter, you know, your, your information into the EHR. So, um, you know, even though it's mitigated, uh, mediated by a, a video screen, you know, telehealth enables you to look your physician in the eye, which is rewarding. I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the broader definition of telehealth. I always want to be careful not to just limit ourselves to these video visits, which are kind of the, the biggest use case. But Kat, you mentioned that there were there was conversation about chatbots, that there was some conversation about remote patient monitoring and, and chronic care. Um, so has, I guess my one question is, you know, for, for both of you, do we have the sense that there's been a similar spike in these other kinds of telehealth uh, as a result of COVID, uh, similar to you know, to to just video visits, and two, you know, is I guess um, if if not, why not, or or what needs to happen there? Yeah, I think remote monitoring is is you know kind of a cousin of of you know these virtual video visits, you know, more complex perhaps with its own set of challenges. But I think that's poised for the same type of growth going forward. Even before COVID nineteen, I remember being at uh, the Connected Health. Um, forum this past fall, I think. And, and you know, John Halamka, who's now president of um, Mayo Clinic Platform, was predicting that, you know, within five or 10 years, you know, hospitals are going to be reserved for just the sickest of the sick, you know, acute care patients, you know, high acuity patients. And majority of care is going to be done from the home with remote monitoring, you know, with sensors, Bluetooth connection. Even now, when patients go in, you know, if a patient suspects that they have COVID-19, uh, the physicians are often giving them, you know, blood pressure cuffs and pulse oximeters and, and sending them home and, and having that data relayed back to the to the physician's office. So I think, you know, like virtual visits and video visits now, uh, remote patient monitoring is, is proving its worth during this pandemic as well. 
Yeah, certainly. And I think we've even seen um, some startups that are in the uh, respiratory monitoring space adapt sort of their their technology connected. Um, oh, what's the name? Spirometers and, and things like that. I think a big hurdle that um, folks will have to face again is accessibility there. And I know that um, with the FCC grants going out, a lot of health systems have used that money to purchase remote monitoring systems to connect with patients. Um, So I think that would be another area of major growth is if these grants specifically went toward those kinds of technologies um, or the sorts of all-in-one home lab testing technologies, I think that would be another way to boost the use of these kinds of technologies among patients. Yeah, certainly. I mean, one advantage of the video visit is that most people have the, the hardware that they need to do that. And, um, or, I mean, even, even phone calls are, you know, are another form of telehealth, is even if, if you don't have the hardware for a video visit. But when we start to think about remote monitoring, there is an additional hurdle of, of sending out the, the sensors or, or the devices that are, that are needed. So we're, we're kind of coming up on our time here. Um, I, I wonder, is there anything, um, Kat, that you observed at the conference that we haven't talked about yet that you think is, is interesting or important? Yeah, I wanted to mention um, your note earlier, Mike, about looking physicians in the eye. Uh, one thing that struck me from a study from 2019 about primary care uh via telehealth was they had their physicians practice with friends and family. And I thought that was a really um, interesting point and maybe one that's been lost amid the crisis, but the opportunity to really practice the skill of looking at the camera and keeping a patient's electronic health record within view, but not off screen and being ready to adapt to this technology, especially in this study in particular, um, or rather this pilot program, it was mostly elderly patients and so they already were sort of facing the hurdle many of them of discomfort with the technology and so I'm wondering whether we might see an increase in sort of telehealth trainings in that regard um, given the huge uptick and the pit the necessity for a lot of physicians to suddenly pivot to using this new skill that a lot of people don't have it's it's kind of difficult to talk into a, a camera if you're not used to it um, and it, it, it takes a special skill. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it almost it, it uh, emphasizes the importance of bedside manner, which is already a skill that in, there's a pretty wide diversity in, in how, how much of it doctors have. But I've definitely, my personal experiences with telehealth, um, it, it just makes a world of difference, you know, to, to be video chatting with someone who, who can at least can like convey to you, give you the idea that they, you know, care about you or are invested in you even if it's not a a provider you have a close relationship with so i'm glad you brought that up because i think that's one of the sort of intangibles here that that doesn't always get talked about um you know people in as we watched how organizations sort of tried to expand and spin out telehealth programs in response to the sudden need for them covid um one of the points that i heard over and over again is that you know as as important as it is to figure out how to rapidly spin up your infrastructure you also need to rapidly spin up your staff training and make sure that everybody knows how to do a telehealth visit, which is not something you can take for granted. Right. Yeah, it requires a lot of change management. And I think that's um, 
one of our other colleagues, Bill Sawicki, is going to be you know putting together a webinar on just that topic um, later in uh, July on you know clinical integration and, and, and change management for for telehealth. Yeah, thank you for that, um, Mike. Because I, I did want to mention. Um, we are launching a series of editorial webinars right now, um, and, and by editorial webinars, I mean very specifically these are led and curated by our own staff. Um, they are they are sponsored, but the sponsors have no sort of say over over what's said and who says it. Um, and our our topic for the first series of editorial webinars is telehealth. So if you're interested in this topic. Um, and keep an eye out for that. We'll we'll add some links when we when those the first ones start to go up. Um, I spoke earlier this week with with Rob Havasi at the Personal Connected Health Alliance, who who is kind of the go to guy at Hims for some of this connected health stuff. And and we hit on several of the same topics we're talking about here. Um, really interesting stuff about remote patient monitoring and, and data and where that's going in the aftermath of COVID nineteen. Yeah, and I did one um, with the. Chief Information Security Officer at Centara Healthcare and uh, the Deputy Director of NIST's Cybersecurity Center for Excellence, as well as a uh, physician and cybersecurity consultant over in the UK on the security, privacy and security implications of telehealth, which uh, is probably worth a podcast of its own. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, we're going to continue to cover telehealth. It's we we always have, but we have ramped up that coverage in, in light of COVID, and and it's and it's being more important than ever. So, um, well, as always, we'll include some links in in the show notes to some articles related to what we've been talking about, some of Kat's coverage of ATA, um, and uh, yeah, please do sign up for the Telehealth Connect newsletter if it's a topic that's interesting to you. We're going to be delivering that to you every Monday, um, and. Uh, giving you the kind of essential updates on the world of telehealth. Thanks so much for joining me, Mike and Kat. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Once again, I want to thank our sponsor, Amwell. Amwell has experienced how COVID-19 has led to a sharp increase in the number of healthcare providers using telehealth and the ways in which they are incorporating telehealth into their practice. As a result of social distancing requirements and regulatory changes under COVID-19, providers and specialists of all kinds have shifted to telehealth en masse to provide ongoing care to new and existing patients. This shift has fundamentally changed how providers experience telehealth as a part of their day-to-day and has helped the world reimagine how virtual technologies like remote patient monitoring devices can impact our ability to serve patients, especially those suffering from chronic diseases. Thanks again to Amwell for sponsoring this podcast and also a series of webinars that you can find coming soon. And for all of you, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe.